Hello, everyone. Welcome to Grace. I want to give a shout out to all of our brothers and sisters who are joining us at Saratoga. Uh, uh, welcome to all of you. A w big welcome and hello to all of those at Half Moon who are a part of our church family. And a welcome, a warm welcome to those who are at Latham. We're one church uh, worshiping at these three different locations. We also have brothers and sisters literally, literally all around the world who tune in regularly and are a part of this worship experience. We're so grateful for this body of believers that identify with Grace Fellowship. We're in a series right now in the book of Jonah, and you know, some people believe that this story is just too much. It's like a fairy tale. I mean, come on, a guy gets swallowed by a whale, lives for three, three days, but even a, a whale can't stomach a rebellious prophet, and so he vomits him out, up on the beach, and guess what? He lands near Nineveh, where he's supposed to be in the first place. I mean, come on. This story just seems so improbable that people try to explain it away. Maybe it's just a parable. Maybe it's just an ancient myth depicting, you know, how God deals with people, but it's not meant to be taken literally. Or, hey, maybe Jonah just got picked up by a passing ship, and it, it had a, a fish for a figurehead on the ship, and over the years, the story just kind of got embellished. Believe it or not, these are the kinds of rationalizations that people make. So I want to start today by just letting you know that I believe this story literally happened in time and space. And I wanna share three reasons why I believe that is the case. Three reasons why I think it literally happened. One is because God appointed a great fish. It doesn't say Jonah got swallowed by a whale. You see, we get ourselves into trouble when we start saying the Bible says things it doesn't really say. I mean, I heard about one guy who said the Bible gave him permission to have eight wives, four better and four worse. I mean, it doesn't say that, all right? The Bible doesn't say Jonah got swallowed by a whale. The language is very precise and very specific, God appointed a great fish. Now think about this. If humans can design and create a submarine where a person can live underwater for months at a time, is it really too difficult to believe that the God who created the universe could actually design a special fish where a man could live for a meager Three days? I've often told you that if you believe the first verse of the Bible, no other miracle should really be a problem. If you believe that God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, then theoretically, no other miracle should be out of range. Now, that doesn't mean that you believe every miraculous report you hear and that you just become a gullible person who just buys into everything you hear people say. That's not what I'm saying. But in theory, 
a miracle-working God can perform any miracle, even if it's beyond our own experience. So that's one reason. A second reason I believe this literally happened is because Jonah gives such detail about his experience. In the second chapter of Jonah that we're gonna examine today, he records this prayer that he had inside the belly of the fish. And it contains all kinds of detail which suggests it's not just poetry or metaphor. Now, please hear me clearly. Occasionally, I'll hear people make a foolish statement like, everything in the Bible is meant to be taken literally. Hold on there. That is a crazy, ridiculous statement. Not everything in the Bible is meant to be taken literally. Scripture makes a lot of use of metaphors and poetry and similes and analogies and so on. Not everything is meant to be taken literally. There are parables and Jesus gave a lot of them. But many things in scripture are meant to be taken literally and this is one of them. This guy really experienced this, and we're gonna look at it in some detail today. But the third reason I believe it literally happened, I think is the most important, and that's because Jesus believed it. Now, this is very, very significant. Jesus made this statement in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man, that's his reference to himself, Jesus is talking about himself, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He's referring there to his burial after his death on the cross. And then he goes on. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. Now, look at this. Jesus is referring back to this episode in the life of Jonah as factual. In fact, he compared it to his own resurrection from the grave, which was literal and bodily. The repentance was real. The preaching of Jonah was real. This whole episode really happened. So my point is, when someone dismisses this story as simply an ancient myth. It seems to me that they're saying Jesus really didn't know what he was talking about. An atheist ridiculed a young seminary student for believing in the story of Jonah. He said, ah, come on, how could Jonah possibly breathe and stay alive for three days in the belly of a fish? I don't know, this young man said, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask him. The atheist said, well, what if, what if Jonah's not in heaven? He said, well, then you ask him. Now, most Christ followers I know could really use some help with what Jonah 2 is about. Jonah 2, chapter 2, is all about prayer. And when we get honest, we say, boy, I could use some help there. Almost every believer I've ever met has said, yep, that's one of the areas where I get shot down in flames all the time. I'm just not very good at prayer. And yet Jesus taught us to pray and not give up. The apostle Paul said, pray without ceasing. So prayer is like this spiritual breathing apparatus. James said, 
You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, sometimes you don't receive because you ask with these wrong motives. So let's get really personal here. How would you describe your prayer life? Is it vibrant and alive? Or is it kind of stagnant and struggling? Is it on life support? Most believers, if they're being honest, will say, look, this is one of the main areas where I could really use some help. I enjoy some of the writings of Anne, or many people call her Annie Lamont. And she tells a situation in her book, Traveling Mercies, about being a brand new believer and trying to get her, get her mind around this whole thing of prayer. She's a single mom, and she has a seven-year-old son. And her son had been invited to go paragliding in this harness off a very high cliff with a tandem expert. And Sam desperately wanted to go. But she was in a panic. And so she began to call all of her smartest friends and ask them for advice. And she says here, half said I should let Sam go. Half acted as if I were considering buying Sam a chainsaw for his birthday. But all the ones who believe in God, all my friends who believe in God told me to pray. So I did. Here are the two best prayers I know, she writes. Help me, help me, help me. And thank you, thank you, thank you. A woman I know for her morning prayer says, whatever. And then for the evening, oh well. <laughs> but she's conceded that these prayers are pal palatable for people without children. Needless to say, Anne Lamott writes, I still didn't know what to do. Well, she ended up not letting him go on the paragliding adventure, but it caused Anne Lamott to face the fact that she really didn't know how to pray and seek God. If that's an area where you struggle, and most of us do, I think that today's chapter in Jonah 2 is gonna help us all grow in the practice of prayer. So let's dive in with a little more background. Let's look at the real life situation of Jonah. What was the situation here? Let's pick it up in chapter two at verse one. It says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. So when is the prayer taking place? It's taking place during the three days and nights that he's in the stomach of the fish. I would suggest to you, it was taking place during a time of desperation, right? And some of our best prayers are when we're desperate. Remember that time in the Gospels where Simon Peter is the only one courageous, ambitious enough to get out of the boat and walk on the water with Jesus? Remember that time? And I sort of envisioned the other guys back in the boat cheering him on. Woo, Peter, way to go, man. Look at you. Woo. Peter, look out for that wave. And a wave crashes against him. He gets his eyes off Jesus and he begins to sink. You remember his prayer? Three words, Lord, save me. And that's a prayer of desperation. And I think that's 
Jonah's prayer here in chapter two. That's the when. But let's talk now briefly about where this prayer takes place. Again, the context, the environment is very clear. It takes place from the stomach of the fish. A strange place, I might add, for a prayer meeting. But again, this location raises some crucial questions. For instance, people simply struggle. How could such a thing happen? Is there a fish large enough to swallow a human and sustain life? And the answer to that is it really depends on the size of the fish's throat. For instance, the northern blue whale, this largest mammal on earth, the mouth is so large you could put the entire New York Giants football team, no kidding, inside the mouth of this whale. But its throat is so small that it can only swallow one fish at a time. So in other words, it takes in a whole school of fish in its mouth, it's so huge, and then one by one, they kind of go down the chute into the whale's stomach. Whaling vessels have actually cut open whales with sharks inside of them 16 feet long, still completely intact. If you've never read the classic novel, Moby Dick, I recommend it. It's one of my favorite novels of all time. It's a classic story about revenge, and it is just so well written. Herman Melville is the author. And in that classic novel, he's talking about the sperm whale. They're mostly in the Southern Seas and the Mediterranean. Sperm whales have often been cut open with chunks of food in them up to eight feet in diameter. Now, Jonah may have been a portly prophet, okay? But I doubt if he was eight feet across. Another question people ask is, how could someone survive in that condition? Do any of you remember what encyclopedias were? Do you remember what those, you, yeah, some of you are, yeah. Back when encyclopedias were a thing, before the internet was accessible, commonly accessible, there was actually, in the Encyclopedia Britannica, there was actually example after example of extensive research that documented people who had been um, swallowed by whales and actually, actually survived to tell about it. Real life stories, names, places, circumstances. You see, the problem here is not really sustaining life. The problem is that most people wouldn't survive the excitement of this. Honestly, most people would probably have a heart attack in Jonah's situation. You say, well, was there adequate air to breathe? Very adequate air. What about the temperature inside the fish? Probably would have been about 104 to 106 degrees. Not super comfortable, to be sure, but not lethal. You say, but what about the gastric juices in the, in the fish's stomach? Well, they would have discolored the skin, but not destroy the living tissue. I could go on and on. But to scoff at this story as being scientifically impossible is frankly to be unapprised of the facts. So, the real problem here is not is there a large enough fish or a large enough throat. The real problem when it comes to 
experiences like this is, is there a large enough God? Let me tell you something, friend. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, whether you consider yourself a veteran or a a newcomer, but I'll tell you this, the size of your God will determine the size of everything else in your theology. Or if I could put that a little differently, your view of who God is in terms of his sovereignty, his might, his power, will determine everything else about how you view his work in the world. And when you have a story like this that is actually confirmed by our Lord Jesus Christ, you can be confident that it's reliable and true. Now, again, with that as a backdrop, let's dive right into the prayer itself. Let's talk a bit about the prayer itself because in this classic prayer, there are some elements here that we would be wise to incorporate in our prayers. So let's look at three of them. Number one is confession. Jonah chapter two, verse two. And he said, I called out of my distress. Boy, that's an understatement, really. He was in enormous consternation to the Lord. And he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. Sheol in Hebrew is this shadowy, dark place. Thou didst hear my voice. Notice the personal pronouns. I, me, and my. This is a personal confession. Jonah is getting extremely, extremely personal here. And this is like the invitation to a confession we have in 1 John chapter one. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jonah had disobeyed God. He needed, he needed to confess his disobedience. And the guarantee of forgiveness comes only through confession. So, gonna get really personal today. How much time do you spend confessing your sins and keeping short accounts with God? I I would suggest that you do that as soon as the Holy Spirit brings you to a point of of, of being ready to do that. Don't stack these up. Don't put them in waiting. Don't say, well, I'll get to that later. We confess the sin directly to God. I remember as a brand new believer in my teenage years, brand new believer, just didn't know anything about walking with God, I would kneel every night beside my bed and ask God just to show me all the ways that I had displeased him that day, and I would confess them to God. That was my practice, kneeling beside my bed and confessing my sins to God every single day. Confession simply means that we agree with God. We say the same thing about our sin that God says about it. It's wrong, it's out of bounds, it's disobedient, it's a violation of his law and of his will, and we confess that to God. He goes on in verse three. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy waves and breakers passed over me. Now it's kind of interesting. Last week we saw it was the sailors who cast Jonah into the sea. Here, he says, God, 
you did it. You cast me into the sea. He's acknowledging that God is sovereign and that the sailors were just instruments that God used. Brothers and sisters, God will often use circumstances in our lives to bring us to our knees. What he did in Jonah's case. Hey, I wonder if over the next 365 days for one entire year, let's suppose that you had absolutely no problems, no difficulties, you didn't even get a cold, you had no diseases, you didn't even have to go to the doctor, it just all, uh, your finances were soaring, all your relationships were just wonderful. Question, if you had a whole year without any problems, how much do you think you would pray? The truth is, most of us wouldn't pray much. God allows us to hit bottom at times. No, he allows us to break through the bottom so that the only way we can look is up. And we get honest with God in some of our finest moments, dear friends, it's when we come to the end of our own strength and we finally confess, God, I'm wrong. I'm out of fellowship. I'm out of line with you. Lord, would you please forgive me? And we begin to cooperate again with God's plan for our lives. Verse four is very interesting. He goes on here. So I said, I've been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. I think he's recalling here the prayer of Solomon at the dedication of the temple. When Solomon said, Lord, when your children are away from this temple, would you teach them to look back toward the temple? And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's remembering the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. God keeps his promises. But notice some of the detail he gives here. And this is one of the reasons that I believe this is not just some parabolic episode, some metaphor. He goes on here, water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds. What kind of weeds are death? He's talking about seaweed. He's got seaweed literally wrapped around his head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. Quite a description of the inside of a fish. Jonah sees himself in a prison. And by the way, that's what sin does. Sin incarcerates us in a prison of our own making. Jonah was, Jonah was literally incarcerated inside this fish. Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And it may not feel that way at first, but eventually we persist in our sin. It literally makes a slave out of us. Confession. How much is a confession, confession, a part of your weekly prayer routine? It's a vital aspect. But let's look at a second part of Jonah's prayer, and that is praise, praise. Any healthy prayer life is filled with praise to God. Question, how much 
does the glorious character and the wonderful actions of God, how much does that fill your mind? I would suggest to you that Jonah's prayer here is just saturated with scripture. In fact, I challenge you to look these up. He quotes, Jonah quotes from six different Psalms. You know what that suggests to me? At some point, he had memorized those Psalms. And now in his time of desperation, now when his life is utterly disoriented, when the bottom quote unquote has fallen out, now he turns to scripture as the launch pad for his prayers. To what degree does scripture inform and guide your prayers? I've come to believe that the most powerful prayer warriors in the world are fully grounded in God's word. And that's what gives their prayers force and direction. That's what puts teeth into our prayers. And I've found personally that if I don't use scripture to prompt and inform and guide my prayers, you know what I do? Rex Keener just prays the same old things about the same old things. Boy, you talk about dull prayers, boring as all get out. But if I let the scriptures guide me, it's fresh and alive. It never gets boring and I never run out of things to pray. I urge you to let scripture guide your prayer. That's what Jonah did. But he goes on. Thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to thee and to thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. So what we're seeing here in the prayer are essentially elements of praise to God. How much is that a part of your prayer life where you praise God for who he is and you thank him for what he's done. I've got a challenge for you. Just a personal challenge this week. If you're a person of faith, if you're a follower of Jesus, I would challenge you this week to spend at least 10 minutes in prayer without asking God for anything. That's harder than you think. Because we just immediately go to petitions, asking, asking, asking God for stuff. Spend at least 10 minutes in prayer. It'll transform your prayer life. If you learn to just bask in his presence, spend 10 minutes without asking him for anything. Praise him, thank him for who he is and for what he's done. I really love Psalm 68, verse 19. Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens, Selah. That little word means now think about that, that God daily bears our burdens. Let's suppose that you were lifting a heavy load up onto the back of a truck and you were kind of struggling because this load is really heavy. It's a burden and some total stranger, somebody you don't even know sees you struggling and comes up and says, hey, can I help? And just instinctively puts their hands under the load and helps hoist it up onto the back of the truck. And you're both breathing kind of hard what would you say to that stranger? Say, wow, thank you. Thanks for jumping in there. 
Thanks for helping me. You really lifted that load. The psalmist says that God does that every day for you. God daily bears my burdens, your burdens. Do we ever stop and just say, thanks. God, thank you. Boy, I was struggling there. You really helped lift that load for me. Jonah begins with confession. He moves on to praise. But then third, I want you to notice the element of repentance. Repentance in his prayer. We all love to be forgiven, but repentance is sometimes difficult. But the only thing that will break the pattern and the power of sin in our lives is godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Verse nine, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. What a powerful acknowledgement. Salvation is from the Lord. Amen to that. The only reason you and I can ever be forgiven is because salvation is from the Lord. We didn't earn it. We didn't orchestrate it. We never could. It's because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. His perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice. Salvation is from the Lord. And our freedom begins when we acknowledge that. I just, I just can't, I can't leave this until I just ask you another question. Have you ever acknowledged that? See, I'm concerned about some of you. I really am. Not kind of be trying to be cute here or melodramatic. I'm just concerned about some of you that you've never really said salvation is from the Lord. You still somewhere in the back of your mind believe I've got to earn this. No, you don't. You can't earn it. You cannot earn it. Salvation is of, it is from, it is by the Lord and no one else. But let's wrap up today by looking at the aftermath of his prayer, the aftermath of Jonah's prayer. Look with me at verse 10. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up. Boy, that's a delicate word, isn't it? Yeah. Not throw up, not barf. He, he just vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. God is so gracious. Jonah didn't deserve another chance. He didn't deserve a do-over, but God gave him one and God still had a mission for him to complete. And we're gonna look at that. Oh, wow, I don't want you to miss next week. We're gonna see the greatest one of the greatest revivals in history and it came through one of the lousiest, lousiest evangelists in history, Jonah. But as we wrap up today, I just wanna speak to your heart for a moment. Because I, I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are in your journey. I, but I'll tell you this, everywhere I've ever gone, and I've been in places literally all around the world, by God's grace, usually preaching, 
usually taking the gospel. And I've been all over the US. And, and here's, here's what's amazed me. The questions people have never change. What's the meaning of life? Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? How can I really change and be transformed? And the world's best minds have offered a bewildering array of answers to those questions. For instance, to the whole question of how can I become a new person and change? Well, Sigmund Freud said, you've got to resolve all those unconscious conflicts from childhood. That's the only way you're really going to change because that's what's messing you up and holding you back. Karl Marx said, in order to change, you've got to establish a classless society. So it's more of a social understanding of change. It's not about individuals changing. It's we've all got to change together if it's going to happen. Carl Jung said that in order for you to really change, you must undergo the mystery, mystery of the transformation process. Carl Rogers, and I was schooled in college and seminary in Rogerian techniques, how to ask those reflective questions and just reflect back with people. I was schooled in Rogerian technique in counseling. Carl Rogers says that in order to change, You've got to alter your stimulus response mechanisms. That's the way it's going to happen because you're just a blank slate anyway. So you've got to alter that through practice. All kinds of answers to how people really change. You know what Jonah discovered? Jonah discovered that the most transforming thing in life is knowing God and doing his will. Knowing God and doing his will. And Jonah discovered, as so many other millions of believers had, that as long as you're doing God's will and walking in his will, guess what? Tremendous peace shows up. Isaiah the prophet said, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. That's the great privilege of following Jesus. He gives us peace that rules and reigns in our hearts and it transcends all understanding. But when we disobey, peace goes out the window. And sometimes God quickly, sometimes over a period of time, God steps in and begins to discipline us. And that's what was happening with Jonah. But here's the thing. Here's the thing I wanna leave you with today, dear friends. Although God disciplines you, he never abandons you. He will not desert you. So if you're looking around your life these days and going, oh, something smells fishy around here. Remember, God has not deserted you. He is a prayer away. He's waiting for you to turn around. He's right there with you, willing and wanting the best for you, as he says so clearly in Isaiah 48, verse 17. I close with this story. David Livingston, if you talk about the history of Christian missions, David Livingston is, he's one of the top five names. And he pioneered, missions and took the gospel to the vast continent of Africa. 
And oh, the struggles he faced. I mean, he had so many struggles. He was attacked by a lion and maimed. His body was often racked by malaria. It just never seemed to go away for very long and dysentery. The one home that he built in his life was burned to the ground. His wife, who was with him at first on the mission field, died. Most of the time, he felt very, very lonely. And when David Livingston was asked, how did you keep going? He said it was the word of Christ ringing in his ears that said, lo, I am with you always to the very end of the world. And then David Livingston was asked, hey, where would you be willing to go? What would you be willing to do for Christ? He said, and I quote, without Christ, not one step with him anywhere. And then finally, he was asked about the sacrifices he had made for following Christ. And he seemed to be confused by the question. He said, sacrifice? Sacrifice? For Christ? The only sacrifice is to be outside of the will of God. Because when you do that, you forfeit God's peace and you incur his discipline. And that's what was happening to Jonah. But thank God his story is not finished, as we're going to see next week. And neither is our story finished. God has a whole lot more. Father, we are always amazed by what is contained in your word. It is so personal. It's so transforming. And Lord, when we come to you with open hearts and ears ready to hear, you give us more than we can even handle. Father, thank you that you love us so much and that you have an amazing mission and future in mind for each and every one of us. And God, I, I pray that, that those among us today, those among us who are a little bit confused right now about what that might be, I pray for clarity. I pray for crystal clarity that you would bring that by your spirit and through your word. And Lord, for those who might be on a side road, maybe a road of disobedience, oh God, would you be gracious? And would you graciously and lovingly bring just the right discipline to lead us back to that road, back to obedience to you? We praise you. We thank you, Lord. And we continue to worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.